Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Practice Drill podcast. This week, we continue our discussion on the T20 World Cup with a focus on Australia's two matches since our last podcast. Then we talk about India's tournament struggles uh, and a deep dive into the problems going on there. Then we uh, talk about the NRL trade season as November 1st is upon us and we finish off talking about the rugby November tour as Australia tours the Northern Hemisphere. As always, shout out to Sencho for providing that killer intro and bringing in my good mate Blaze McKee. Blaze, another week of sport down, a lot of cricket and uh, also domestic leagues getting up and going. How excited are you for the cricket season? Yeah, it's getting better and better each week. And, you know, with the Cricket World Cup on, we've been getting up every morning and, and checking the scores. It's It's been an up-and-down week, I think, for, for all Aussie fans with the two results there. But, yeah, it's been good. And I just want to congratulate you. You had your first trial match on the weekend. Cricket season's back for the two of us. A cheeky 50. How was the innings? Yeah, it was good to get out there, actually. You know, it'd been a long time since we'd played any sport, so it was good to just get back out there and... And we both had some pretty good performances. Obviously, the Concord Briars uh, started their their three peak journey with a with yeah. a big win, and and we got a win as well with the Western Sydney. So that was good. Nice. I absolutely love cricket season. I'm so happy it's here. But if you want to stay up to date on all the professional uh, sport, uh, go and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at t underscore practice drill, keeping you up to date on cricket, NRL, AFL, rugby union and the NBA. Now, Blaze, let's get straight into it. As I said in the introduction, we're talking about uh, the T20 World Cup and a focus on Australia to begin with now. A heartbreaking loss to England, which we stayed up and watched. Uh, Really disappointing. Australia bowled out for 125 and England chased it comfortably with many overs to spare and uh, got a nice eight-wicket win there. And it really brought Australia back down to earth after what was a really convincing win against Sri Lanka where, you know, someone who I said at the start was going to be pivotal if Australia was going to do anything in this World Cup, Davey Warner, was able to score a nice 65 of 42 deliveries. 10 fours, a really classy, classic Warner innings. But once again, the top six failed to score for Australia losing four wickets for just 21 runs after 6.1 overs. Not a good start they got off to in that game, and they basically dug themselves a hole they couldn't get out of. Yeah, we've spoken about in the past. Obviously, the opening partnerships is a huge one, but also that power play, the first six overs, is, is huge. And, and you know, as you say, four for 21 really isn't good enough. It was it was a pretty funny uh, time watching that game. Obviously, you had the multi going, and... And Aaron Finch actually hit a boundary, I believe it was on the, the fifth ball, to, yep. to get your first leg yep. of the multi first leg. up. And I think we were very excited and very bullish about the rest of the six legs. Might have been two balls later, David Warner's <laughs> nicked off and, and the multi's down the drain. And unfortunately, Australia fell away from there. Yeah, no, it was uh, amazing getting that over 4.5 uh, first over runs. Uh, thanks, Finchy. Um, Aaron Finch actually, we talk, I said top six failed. Aaron Finch actually delivered um, with uh, a nice 44. And that's kind of been back-to-back good innings from Finch, who uh, got a total of 37 against Sri Lanka. Um, but it's just it's just the way that Australia is getting out at the moment. I mean, Warner, what was that shot? Had about a 45-degree angle bat. Not really 
you know, moving his feet too much. It was almost a defensive shot. But if he just played a bit more cert- with a bit more certainty, that's a nice shot through that cover point region, um, which we've seen him do many times off the back foot. He just couldn't seem to get onto it, uh, nicking off. Then you had Steve Smith, who was caught um, quite spectacularly. So can't really blame him there. Maxwell wasting a review on the LBW. Stoin is getting a duck. It was just uh, a really disappointing innings from them. But as I said, England chased it with ease. Josh Butler, 71 of 32 balls now. He really shut me up because I was saying that I think he was going to get less than 10. Uh, what do you think of uh, Butler's innings? Yeah, he's a pretty incredible player. And some of the shots he was playing, I think particularly off, I think, Mitchell Stark. And, you know, we've seen him a lot here. He's played for the Sydney Thunder, so... He's someone that we've seen a lot of yeah. a lot of play in the last few years, and, and he's pretty incredible once he gets going. And I mean, when you've got a low total like that, it's really important for your openers to go out there and, and set the tone. And he got them off to a flyer, which meant, I guess, they got over the line with ease. Yeah, and it's always kind of when you're chasing a, a, a low T20 total of 126 to win, there's two ways. You can go out there and go, like, let's get this done quickly. But as soon as you start losing wickets, it's that thought of, no, surely, surely we can't choke this. Um, so, you know, you've got to tip your hat to Josh Butler and Jason Roy for really steadying the ship. Uh, 93 um, runs between the two openers. Absolutely uh, incredible. But back focusing on the Aussie side of it, some big selection decisions. Now, the biggest one was dropping Mitch Marsh, who coming into the World Cup was arguably Australia's best batsman because Warner wasn't playing, Smith wasn't playing in those tour games against uh, Bangladesh and the West Indies. And they bring Agar in. Now, I'm just confused as to why. Mitch Marsh is a better fielder, Mitch Marsh is a better bowler, and he's a better batsman. Um, I'm not sure whether it's even worth you know, playing Agar, even if you're going for like a second spinner option or whatever the thought process is, or a third because you've got Maxwell. I just think you've got to keep Mitch Marsh in that team just as a safety net. Bat him him as low as you want, but you can really bat anywhere in that lineup, which is something that Agar can't do. Yeah, obviously, I guess hindsight's a great thing. One, we've got to say that off the bat. You know, obviously we didn't score many runs and we could have used an extra batter in there, but... Particularly given, you know, Australia, we're not a very settled team. And although we won our first two games, we're, we're not coming into the tournament with a lot of confidence. So for me, you know, when you win some games, you want to stick with that group and, and keep the same guys. And as you say, the makeup of the team is pretty interesting because Marsh, Stoinis and Maxwell can all cover some overs. And we only need four overs covered and you've got three guys yeah. there. So you're going to figure out some combination to get those four overs done. And we saw that through the first two games. Obviously, the first one, Maxwell bowled four overs. And then in the second one, they spread them out a bit more. So it definitely was an interesting call. And it definitely backfired on a big time. But my thing is, at the moment, when I look at the Australian team, and, and, it, and it's across the entire tournament, 150 kilometer an hour bowlers are not doing well on these pitches. It's a quick outfield. It's, it's looking like a bit of a road at times. There's not really too much for the bowlers. Pat Cummins is getting hit. Uh, Mitch Stark's getting hit. But then you look at Josh Hazelwood, who's the slower of the Australian um, trio quicks. And he's the one taking the wickets. He's the one, you know, going for overs where he's only going for a run, you know, a runner ball or, or something like that. 
that's why you need Mitch Marsh in the team as a slower bowler who doesn't come onto the bat as quickly and it forces the batsman to actually play a shot if they wanted to get to the boundary, not, you know, you know, playing at one, getting a nick and it's going, you know, one bounce for four. Like that's what's happening off Mitch Stark especially. So I just think Mitch Marsh has a lot of value in the team and I don't really understand the, the dropping of him, especially because we do really need a good uh, medium pace all-rounder. Um, now, considering all of that, there's still a lot of hope for the Aussies. They can still make the semis, given that South Africa has to play England. England are looking like uh, the best team in Group uh, 1. But at the moment, Australia's sitting in the third-place spot, and they've got to play the West Indies and Bangladesh. Bangladesh should be a fairly comfortable win, but the West Indies towel Australia up in the, in the trial matches, and they're a bit of a wild card when it comes to these tournaments. Do you think Australia goes two from two in those, or do you think there's a chance that they could miss out and South Africa might be able to slot in and take the, the spot in the semis? I think they definitely probably should be the favourites to fill that second spot. Obviously, the West Indies, as you say, are a difficult matchup, but they have been pretty poor throughout this tournament, especially with the bat. They've really struggled, but we do know, you know, they have the players that can just go on any given night, so they're still going to be a challenge, and Bangladesh have also struggled this tournament, so hopefully Australia can get the win there, but they still have some quality players as well, and Australia are going to have to perform, you know, better than they, they did against England, and, and hopefully they can dust themselves off, and, and some of those other guys can maybe support, you know, Finch at the top of the order, and, and we can get some results there. Now, talking about trying to perform better than you have, India, our two predicted winners for the T20 World Cup, they've gone two games, two losses, and last night we saw a shock second tournament loss for them against New Zealand by eight uh, eight wickets, and critics have really come after them. Uh, Their star batsmen haven't really capitalised when you have a look at, you know, the opportunity to win a tournament and looking at their averages. Now, the main one being my predicted batsman of the tournament, uh, Rohit Sharma, averaging just seven, total of 14 runs through his first two games. What do you make of this situation that India have uh, put themselves in? Yeah, obviously pretty shocking. Two losses and two very big losses as well. You know, Pakistan were really dominant in their first up game, and then New Zealand came in and, and were dominant as well. And, yeah, unfortunately, they haven't really scored enough runs. And... I think they have relied heavily on a guy like Rohit Sharma. You know, his average for T20s is really impressive in the, in the 30s. Yeah, there. So, 32. Yeah. yeah, so they're really relying on guys like him. And, and KL Rahul as well at the top of the order, I think, is high 30s. Yeah, 30 so, and a half, yeah. Yeah, like they've been real dominant in the T20 space and it's been off the back of those two guys starting well and then Virat Kohli coming in and his average is, is hugely impressive, over 50, but... You know, those three guys have probably struggled and not been up to the standard that they usually are, and, and the team has struggled as a result. And I mean, it's, it's, you're 100% right. It, when it comes down to T20 cricket, obviously, this is a little bit captain obvious stuff, but because you've got such a, a limited amount of overs, it really is about getting yourself off to a good start and then putting yourself in a position where you've got wickets in hand to allow your late middle order to come in and, and, and really put some runs on. I remember one of, in, just in my mind, it may not be st- statistically the best Australian one-day team, but 
about the 2014-15 period where they had Warner and Finch going ballistic and, and you had, you know, Clark and Watto and all that that kind of players. And then you had um, Faulkner coming in late. And he would never be put in a position where um, he had to come in, you know, 10 overs in. He came in and finished it, needing, you know, 20 runs off the last two overs. Um, and at the moment, the... India's top order is putting their middle order under so much pressure and that pressure is making them get out. Then it comes out to the tail order. They've really got to fix that up. I think Coley, although he got out, got out for nine against New Zealand, he would have been the target of their attack, so you can understand that. But he did score 57 against Pakistan, so he is trying to play well and, and lead from the front, but you're 100% right. It comes down to those openers in Sharma and Rahul. Um, to really get them off to a good start. But it's now looking unlikely that India will make the semis as you know, the two teams they've lost to New Zealand and Pakistan look so much better. And they've obviously won their first two games and put themselves in the box seat to go through um, out of that pool. But the question now, and the critics have come after India asking this question, they have failed to win big tournaments under Coley's captaincy. Is this an actual issue or is it just people being very uh, reactionary to, to what's just occurred? I think I think it definitely is an issue. You know, any time with India, they're always going to be huge expectations. And in the past, they've been very good at tournament cricket. You know, you look at their T20 and ODI World Cup records, they're, they're very strong. They've actually... The weird thing is they've improved outside of those tournament windows, you know, a big part of that is their ability to travel now. Obviously, they had a really good series against England. They beat Australia in Australia. They've never really done that in the past. So they have improved in those out-of-tournament situations, those out-of-tournament windows, and maybe that's increased the expectation when it comes to those big tournaments. But, yeah, they've they've really struggled, particularly in the last few years. Obviously, they, they didn't come away with a one-day title. They lost in the, the semifinals, I think, there. Yeah. They lost the World Test Championships when they were pretty heavy favourites uh, they lost there to New Zealand. And now it looks like they might not even make the finals for this T20. So I think it is a big issue. And, you know, it could be a stain on, on Coley's career as he gets towards the back end, which which is unfortunate because he's such a such a great player and he has done so much in the game. Yeah, it's uh, a lot's going to have to go their way. They're going to need some big upsets uh, for some of those smaller nations playing against New Zealand and Pakistan. But India's three final games are against Afghanistan, Scotland, and Namibia. Probably three straight wins there, but they'll probably fall about one win short of making it through to uh, the final stages of the T20 World Cup. Now, on to topic number three, the annual trade season now. Today, November 1st, we spoke about it last week, is the start of the NRL trade period. We're expecting to see a lot of headlines about players uh, moving uh, to other rival clubs over the next week. Some of the players in the headlines, Brandon Smith, Viliami Kikau, Clint Gutherson, Reid Marnie, Joseph Manu, Isaiah Papali'i, Api Korosau, and Junior Paulo, just to name a few. Now, those are some big names, and I think... The biggest thing to take away from that list is four Parramatta players in there. Now, one of the best signings of the season was Isaiah Papalihi, who uh, Parramatta got from the Warriors. Now, his current contract isn't great, 
because obviously it was a, a, a bargain buy, it's meant to go up by $75,000 this year. And Parramatta have offered him a two-year contract extension, which he has turned down. What do you make of this, turning down a two-year contract extension where, you know, a year ago, no one really knew who Isaiah Papali'i was? For me, it's probably fair play to, to Papali'i. He's put himself in a position where he probably can go out and test the market. I think, you know, rejecting an initial offer by no means means that he'll be leaving the Paramount Eels. He just means that he wants to see what, what other clubs are going to offer him. And, and there are going to be other clubs that are going to offer him more. And I'm sure the Eels probably will offer him more. You know, that's part of bargaining. And, and I think people maybe don't see that side of things a lot. There's probably a lot of those things that happen maybe behind closed doors, but this one's got out. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him. And, and there's going to be some clubs that are, you know, going to be linked to a lot of players. We yeah. saw him linked to the Tigers I think yeah. the Tigers are always linked to just about every player that uh, goes out on the market just because of the nature of their club and, yeah. and they're always on the lookout for players. But, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting. And it's a good story to see someone like that who, you know, went over there, got a bit of a lifeline from the Warriors, went to the Eels and, and really, you know, took off last year and, and is now reaping the rewards. Yeah, no, he had an unbelievable season. You know, one of arguably the the best second roller uh, this year. But my, my issue with... Parramatta, and I guess they're probably so their contract extension offer is four hundred and twenty five thousand dollars over two years. They're probably offering him that because they're hoping to throw more money at some of the other players around him, and they're hoping, well, that's the amount that we've put aside for him. We'll have this much for Gutherson, Marnie, you know, even Regan Campbell Gillard is off contract in 2023, and he's turned down his extension as well. Junior Paulo, as I said. Um, but the West Tigers, $600,000. Now, if you're Isaiah Papali, you've had one good year, you're taking that offer. Because what happens if you get an injury or, you know, it's especially something I talk about in the NBA, which I follow very closely. New episode coming out soon of Around the Key, presented by the Practice Drill. Um, is they called like the, the sophomore year. You've had a good rookie year, you come in in the second year and it's and there's a lot of pressure to try and play better than what you just did. And I think that'll be on Isaiah this season. So if I'm him, I'm taking that Tigers contract because either way, you're not winning a premiership at either of those clubs anytime soon. So that's my look on it. But someone who is possibly in a, a premiership and an award window is Joseph Manu who has said to the Roosters he wants to switch positions. Now, we saw him play at fullback where he was an absolute gun, 5'8 as well. Um, but the Warriors are the main team going after him, preparing to play over one mil a season, uh, which would see Walsh maybe move to 5'8 and him to fullback. What do you think about Manu going back to New Zealand? I think it'd be a great move for the Warriors in terms of marketing. Obviously, Joseph Manu probably one of the biggest Kiwi stars in the game yeah. and, and has a huge, you know, he's played for the New Zealand Māori uh, numerous times and, and the Warriors are a club that love to, you know, really connect to those roots and, and having someone, a big Kiwi star is really important for them to, to get the crowds in and particularly as they look to start moving back to New Zealand and playing some games there. It's going to be interesting to see how it all works out. Obviously, Reese Walsh, incredible talent. Yeah. but only a young player and has only had maybe half a season at fullback. So to maybe rush him into the 5'8 spot could be a bit of a risk. But then again, 
you know, the Warriors haven't really had someone nail down that spot for a long time. So if they can get him in there as a young player and, and if he can, you know, show some potential there, they could have a long-term option at both fullback and 5'8". Yeah, probably their last, you know, secure 5'8 would have been James Maloney, which was years and years ago. So I 100% agree with what you're saying. But if I'm the Warriors, I'm, you know, I am offering Manu that contract and I'm saying, where do you want to play? We'll work around... If you want to play 5'8", cool, we'll keep Reese at fullback. If you want to play fullback, we'll move Reese because uh, I think Reese has probably played all over the spine um, in his you know junior career. Uh, another, you know, more of a feel-good uh, feel story uh, is Cody Walker re-signing with the Rabbitohs until the end of 2023, which is great. Um you know, one player of the year at South, led them through to a grand final, had, you know, one of the best try assist seasons ever for a player. So it's really important for them to um, have some experience and uh, in the side and, and really guide some of the younger players around. Um, would you like to see him sign even longer than that in the future? Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, if he tears up this year, do they sign him again? Yeah. And, and then, you know, they're going to have to go through this process again next year, which has been a process the Rabbitohs have struggled with, obviously with Adam Reynolds this year. So it is interesting to see how they how they work around some of their older halves. But as you said, really important for them to, you know, keep some experience in there. Obviously lost Reynolds, Wayne Bennett's gone, Dane Gagai, you know, a lot of experience in that yeah. back line is going to be gone. And guys coming in like Blake Taff, you know, Lachlan Ilias, I think to have a guy like Cody Walker who is experienced but also in, in some incredible form this year. He yeah. was he was pretty outstanding. He was unbelievable. And he was a huge part in their run yeah. to the finals. So he's gonna be hopefully good for another year and I, I think he loves that club and, and he loves South Sydney so he'll um, be a big for them. Yeah, and I think even one of the main things for Cody Walker is, you know, he had such a good year this year, didn't get a game in Origin, so that'll be a really driving force for him next year. But um yeah it'll be interesting to see how he plays and especially he's gonna have such a big leadership role. Um, with with Reynolds obviously going to Brisbane. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Now, onto our final topic, the Rugby November Tour, an uh, absolute highlight of, of uh, the rugby season for uh, rugby fans. Uh, now, all the big teams get to you know, play, see each other, get to northern versus you know, southern hemisphere, uh, you know, teams going at it. Now, for the Aussies, they played Japan the other week, got a, a scrappy win, 32-23, to 23, um, and now they turn their attention towards uh, a UK stop and playing against Scotland on Monday morning. How do you think the Aussies will fare in that matchup? Yeah, hopefully they go all right. Obviously, it's, it's a bit of a perennial debate, I think, in the rugby union space. You know, you play in your northern hemisphere competitions and it's always who's going to come out on top and which style is going to come out on top. And Australia have been really successful over the last six weeks, seven weeks, playing playing quite an expansive brand of rugby. And, and Scotland's, you know, coming off a big with themselves, but play obviously a more conservative style, are going to, you know, kick more penalty goals and, and look at their set piece more. So it's going to be a different challenge for Australia, but I think their expansive game style is is going to always give them a chance. And, and I think they're a really good opportunity to start their tour strongly against Scotland and then move on to some of the bigger games against England and the likes. Well, hopefully they continue that win streak. What's it now? Five? Five wins, I think. Damn. Yeah. 
That's got to be the longest for a while, surely. Um, now, we'd love it to go to six if they can beat Scotland, but this camp has been quite disrupted by uh, Samu Karevi, Quade Cooper, and uh, others leaving the squad. Now, can you talk about the Quade Cooper thing? Because my last thing that I remember is that, and I'm sure other people remember, is he just missed the flight. What's happened since then? Yeah, it was obviously, it was a bit of a disorganised period. So I guess the World Rugby guidelines stipulate certain periods where the club sides have to release their players to the international sides. And, you know, I think the Wallabies and Rugby Australia were, you know, to their understanding that these three guys were going to be all good to get on that flight over to Scotland. And it obviously got to the day and, you know, the, the players said that they pulled out of the tour they they didn't want to tour with the wallabies and it's one of those ones where yeah the clubs can't say can't publicly say you can't come but they can do some little uh slide deals maybe behind closed doors and put some pressure on players so that they personally pull out of the tour now i mean i don't know what happened there with the dealings but the cynic in me says that there might have been some some little dodgy deals and it, it probably sets a pretty interesting precedent for clubs going forward i know some of the french clubs are going to be looking at this situation and, and probably licking their lips thinking yeah. maybe in the future we can we can start to keep some players during those international periods obviously pretty disappointing for the aussies particularly i think someone like samu karevi who, who's outstanding and, and has been a huge part of their success so a huge gap to fill there but they're just going to have to get on with it i guess well i think like samu karevi is the future of australian rugby but during this run Quade Cooper's been there the whole time and he's been someone who, you know, has... It's not the ARU's fault, but mainly Quade's fault, you know, playing overseas, the Giddo Laurel, all of that kind of stuff that was preventing him from, you know, representing Australian and some off-field dilemmas. But since he's been back, he's just been unbelievable, solid player, obviously got a little bit too flashy against Japan. That's obviously his comfort zone over there. Um... Is there any chance that they will join the squad later and maybe just miss the Scot- uh, the Scotland match? or? Yeah, there probably is a chance. I think, as we say, we're not over all the details, so yeah. there could be a chance there, but it's probably one of those ones, you know, it's only a four-week yeah. four camp. I'm not sure what the, you know, regulations are around quarantine or whether the players have to get tested or do any isolation yeah. when they get up there. So it might be a bridge too far, but... You know, Quade Cooper at that fly half position, such a key position. It's going to be definitely some change for them. They're going to have to bring probably James O'Connor back in there and, and Noah Alessio is going to have to join the camp late. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt around James O'Connor, who's a different game style to Quade Cooper. Yeah, well, still a, still a solid selection uh, to have come into the squad. Now, Scotland coming off a big win against uh, assistant coached Tongan side, uh, by uh, John McKee. Uh, how did he uh, feel after the, the disappointing loss? Oh, I think he, you know, there were definitely some positives on the Tongan side. They had they had a pretty disrupted camp. You know, they didn't have a lot of their players. I think he said they actually didn't pack a scrum until the warm-up before the game. So really? from some of those, when you consider some of those circumstances, it, it wasn't too bad. I, I think they were pretty disappointed to, to leak some tries in the last 10 minutes that really blew out the scoreline. But... You know, from Scotland's point of view, they'll be really happy. They, you know, it was their first game back at Murrayfield with crowds for a long time, and they looked pretty impressive. And, and you know, they scored some really good tries. 
and they're going to be be even stronger this week. They'll get some of their players that play over in England back into the squad, and yeah. they're going to be raring to go, and, and they're going to be looking at this Wallabies game as a big, you know, big chance for them to knock off a team above them in the world rankings, and they have quite a good history against the Wallabies, especially in recent years, so I think they'll be ready to go. Well, fingers crossed uh, they uh, don't win. Um, but, no, it should be a great match now. Some other games to watch uh, coming up. What what are the big ones for you? Yeah, I guess, you know, part of the Northern Hemisphere tour is there's heaps of games on. Every every sort of team plays, whether they're Tier 1 or Tier 2. So some of the big games to look at this week are, are Wales and South Africa. It's going to be, be a ripper. Yeah, real exciting game. Two hugely physical sides go against each other. And then Argentina versus France. A bit different, you know, two teams that come with a huge amount of passion and and are going to be a real fiery clash, I think. You know, there could be a bit of tension there and maybe a few few little dust-ups along the way. So that's <laughs> going to be an exciting one to keep an eye on. Well, we're looking, like I said, uh, like an amazing November tour for all of rugby, really, and especially uh, the Wallabies. Now, that's all we have for this week's podcast Uh, Make sure to keep up to date by following us on Instagram and Twitter uh, on all things NRL, AFL, Rugby Union, Cricket and NBA Basketball. Uh, Blaze, what's the thing you're looking most forward to in the next week of uh, sport? I think for me it's got to be the Cricket World Cup again. Obviously we spoke about it a lot today but it's it's getting closer to the business end and you know, there's some huge games coming up for, for both Australia as we spoke about and for India who are hoping to get their tournament back on track. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Aussies' next game, but that uh, will do us. Until next week, enjoy your sport. See ya.